Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, Exodus 17, our text today will be verses 8 through 16. If you've been with us in this study of Exodus, you know that in those first 13 chapters or so, we, we looked at the record of how the Lord came to His people and their distress and their slavery. That period of Exodus covered about 80 years in the life of God's people. And the timeline has slowed down dramatically over the last few chapters. We've entered into this time now where God has gone from coming to His people to going with His people, uh, delivering them out of their slavery and captivity. So Exodus 14-18, through that covers about two months or so. And during that time, so far what we've seen is a people who, as we mentioned last week, they, they struggle to have faith. God has consistently provided for His people, and yet in a moment where they question His provision, when they're not sure about His provision, where they're hungry or thirsty, they begin to grumble and complain. And yet what we've seen consistently in this text so far, and what I hope has stayed with you, is the message of God's faithfulness to us even when we struggle in our faith. In other words, it's not that the amount, the strength of our faith that matters, it is the object of our faith that primarily matters. That is how we are saved, by trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we should want to grow in that faith, and, and we will see today uh, more uh, evidence, uh, more of a teaching on, on why we should grow in that faith and how we can grow in that faith. But I hope foundationally you've seen the grace of God and the mercy of God that even when we struggle in our faith, He is still faithful to us. And so we'll continue to see His faithfulness now as we look at Exodus 17, beginning there in verse 8, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. This is what God's Holy Word says. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If you would, pray with me. Father, just as we have already heard this morning, I pray that our trust would not be in chariots or horses, that our trust would not be in men or armies, that our trust would not be in politicians and kings and kingdoms of this earth, 
But Lord, I pray this morning that our trust would be in the name of the Lord our God. And so, Father, I pray that, that you might help us this morning to grow in our trust and faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. I have shared before that when my children were younger, one of the things I enjoyed doing with them was reading books. We are a family of readers, and, and when they were real little, they would crawl up on our laps, and Sandy and I would read to them. And, and as I've shared before, one of my favorite types of books to read to my kids when they were younger was pop-up books. And if you're familiar with pop-up books, you know that as you turn the page, that the story comes in front of you. The story just kind of sets right up and there's this, this picture of what it is that you're reading in the story. And I, I loved pop-up books because the kids' eyes would just kind of get big as that story came up off the page. And they would get excited about those stories. I share that with you this morning because I'm reminded every time I open up the Old Testament of how there's this story that just comes up off the page at us. You see, as New Testament believers, we have the gospel story in front of us. And understanding that gospel story, we have the great benefit then of being able to go back and read through the Old Testament and see how page after page that gospel story just comes up in front of us. Now, the gospel story doesn't begin in Matthew 1. The gospel story begins in Genesis 1. And so we see consistently through the Old Testament, going into the New Testament, this picture of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we looked at that picture last Lord's Day as we looked at God's people once again grumbling and complaining to the Lord. They were thirsty. They wanted something to drink. And they really deserved in their grumbling disobedience to be struck down by the Lord. And yet the Lord in His grace towards them, rather than strike them down, told Moses that he, the Lord, would stand on a rock and said, Moses, I want you to take that staff and I want you to strike the rock. And when he struck the rock, water came out from the rock. And we talked about how that was a picture of the gospel. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that, that Christ was the rock. That that's a picture of Christ being struck for our sins. That, that living water that Christ offers us for whenever thirst again. We can make all those connections once we understand the gospel and then can come back through the Old Testament and just see this picture of the gospel time and time again coming in front of us. And it's not just a picture of the gospel that we see. It's a picture of walking by faith that we see. Because as we've seen, God has saved His people out of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery. And now as a saved, redeemed people, they are walking and growing in their faith on this journey towards the promised land. And I've talked before about how that is a picture of us this morning who are believers in Christ. We too are on a journey. We too are walking towards the land of promise, towards the new heaven and the new earth. We too are growing in our faith. And so I believe there is much for us to learn about the Christian life, even as we look back in Exodus 17. And beginning with the first point that I've put there in your outline this morning, we learn here, we're reminded here, that the Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is a battle. 
How is the Christian life a battle? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, let's look at the battle that the Israelites were facing. You'll remember now that the Israelites are journeying towards the promised land as they are leaving Egypt, as they're on their way to Canaan. They are now journeying through a strange land. They are strangers in a strange land, which is exactly how the Scripture refers to us as believers today. We too are strangers in a strange land. And as they're on this journey, they come under attack. Verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now just a little background here that might be helpful. Uh, Amalek, that's referring to the people of Amalek, the people under the command of Amalek. We can also call them the Amalekites. We find in the Scripture that the Amalekites, we can trace them all the way back to Genesis 36 to Esau. Esau's grandson was Amalek. And we have all these descendants of that Amalek who refer to themselves as the Amalekites or the people of Amalek. And what we find throughout the Scripture is that the Amalekites were constantly warring against God's people. In other words, they were the enemies of Israel. And this goes back, of course, to that feud between Amalek's grandfather Esau and his brother Jacob. If you were with us as we studied through Genesis, you'll remember how we studied that that conflict between these two brothers. Esau was the one who had the blessing and the birthright, and yet we see how his, his brother Jacob comes in, and he, he connives his way into those things. He takes that birthright for, from him in exchange for a bowl of stew when his brother's hungry. And then we see later how Jacob steals his brother's blessing from his aging father Isaac. And there Isaac is, his eyes are weak, he's about to die, it's time for him to bless Esau, and yet we see how Jacob comes in disguised as Esau, and he steals that blessing from him. And from that moment forward, we see this great feud between these two brothers. Now eventually, in our study of Genesis, we saw how God reconciles those brothers to each other. But before that reconciliation takes place, that that feud existed not between them, but it was carried on by their descendants. And that's what we see in the Amalekites. Is they are essentially continuing in this feud, continuing in their hatred of this line of Jacob, continuing in their hatred of God's people Israel. And so here we see that they're coming to attack the Israelites. Now verse 8 doesn't give us a lot of information other than Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so... You could infer from that passage that Israel was the aggressor. You could infer from that passage that Amalek was the aggressor. But other scriptures give us more information that help us to see just what the Amalekites were like. And that they very much were attacking the Israelites here. For example, we read this in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way while you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And so the picture we have is as God's people are journeying, you have this godless people, the Amalekites, who are kind of sneaking up behind them. And for those who are faint and weary from the journey, who maybe were lagging behind a bit, they're just kind of ambushing them and taking them out. And so we very much have a picture here in Exodus chapter 17 of the Amalekites as the enemies of God. But as you know from the Scripture, the Amalekites weren't the only enemies of God and His people. 
And we'll find as they continue in their journey towards the land of promise, they will face many other people groups who are enemies of God and His people, but they all ultimately serve the same purpose. And that purpose is of their father, the devil. And their father, the devil, wants to destroy the people of God. And so what we see here is this picture in the Scripture of how there is a great enemy who wants to destroy the people of God and the works of God. And friends, that directly relates to us in the Christian life today. Because there is still very much an enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy the people of God and wants to destroy the works of God. Who comes to us when we are weak and we are weary from the journey and wants to ambush us. And the Scripture says as a result of this, we need to be ready for these attacks. And we need to be ready to to do battle in the Christian life. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul helps us to see here that in the Christian life, we too are very much in a battle, and ours is a spiritual battle. And he tells us how we can prepare to fight in this spiritual battle. He goes on to write this in Ephesians 6, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so Paul reminds us, Christian, that we very much live in a war zone today and we live on a battlefield today. This is a reminder to us that the Christian life doesn't simply consist of walking an aisle in a church of praying a prayer, of getting baptized, and then sitting in a pew for the next several decades. That the Christian life is not an idle life. The Christian life is not one where we can say, well, I I got baptized, I joined that church, I became a believer, and, and so I'm all good now. As if we don't have to do anything else. No, the Christian life is a call to arms. The Christian life is a call to battle. The Christian life is a call to fight. And what we find here is a reminder that we live in a war zone and there's a battle going on today. And so we need to be prepared to fight this enemy. Which brings us to the second point there in your outline. We need to be prepared to fight. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 6, and we see this as well very much in this battle that Israel is going to fight against Amalek in Exodus chapter 17. Look there again, verse 9. And God tells Moses to choose which men will go out and fight. This is the first mention of Joshua that we have so far in the Scripture. Of course, his name will come up many other times, but we learned here that he is called on to be the commander of the Lord's army against the Amalekites. 
because Moses is going to be placed up on a hill. The Scripture says there that Moses is going to be with Aaron and her. He's going to have the, the staff of God. And he's going to be standing up there on the hill as Joshua leads this army into battle. And then we read something very curious. Notice there in verse 11. text tells us, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, I've spent much of the last couple of weeks uh, trying to answer that very question. And I've found that there are many interpretations of this passage uh, by good, uh, godly theologians and commentators, but just they land in different spots. And so you have uh, many who look to this as Moses here is praying. Uh, we see at other times in Exodus that posture where Moses is praying, he actually lifts his hands up towards heaven. And so there are some who read this passage and say, well, this is evidence, this is a picture of Moses praying on behalf of the people of God. And so as long as he has his hands lifted high, and as long as he's praying, and as long as he's interceding for God's people, then they're victorious. But when he lowers his hands, when he fails to pray, when he grows weary, the people begin to fail. And so those who adhere to that interpretation would say this is a lesson on our need to be diligent in prayer, to intercede in prayer, and Moses here is a picture of prayer. The problem with this interpretation is nowhere in Exodus 17 does it say Moses is praying. <laughs> and there are other texts where it says very clearly, Moses prayed. It could have said that here, but it doesn't. And so while that may be the context, we're left unsure there are others that have other interpretations of this. Some who look at this as a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. Some who look to this picture of Moses on the hillside with Aaron on one side and her on the other side, that this is a picture of Jesus Himself on the cross surrounded by the two criminals. Now, I'm not sure how Aaron and her would feel about that interpretation, but that's the picture that some say this gives us. And then there are others who have more interpretations that many don't adhere to that you'll see pop up. John Calvin wrote that he suggested this passage was a picture of how God delegates authority to ministers. And so you have this picture of Moses as minister and he's got this authority. But all those interpretations, I would say, are within the realm of orthodoxy. They're not blasphemous or heretical. They just might miss the mark. They might not. We don't know. But then there's other interpretations that we can see from the rest of Scripture, they're just flat out wrong. And so there's one interpretation that you'll find among those who are part of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, that, that will look to this text and say, well, this is just another example of the Scripture showing us that if we have enough faith, we'll be victorious. And so this is all about faith. So if, if Moses had faith, then God gives him the victory. When he put his hands down, he was lacking faith. God took the victory away. And so God is basically going to either give him victory or not give him victory, completely dependent on the faith of Moses. And then they will then tell you how this applies to your life and my life, is that if we have enough faith, God will give us the victory too. Not feeling too well this morning? You don't have enough faith. Frustrated when you sat down to pay bills and there wasn't more left over? Well, be frustrated with yourself. If you had more faith, 
In fact, some would say if you just send them a little seed money, then that faith would just grow. And we see so often in this false prosperity, health and wealth gospel, this teaching that relies solely and completely on you and on me and the sovereignty of God is nowhere to be found. One of these prosperity preachers in writing about texts like this said this, he urges Christians to simply call on what he calls the laws of prosperity to which God himself is bound. And he went on to write this, it's a bit like tuning in your radio or television station. You you get the right frequency and you pick up the program. And so you've got to kind of find that that perfect sink of faith. And once you have it, man, the blessings are just going to come. And so here's Moses holding up the staff, trying to find that right signal. And if he can just get it right, then God will give victory. Friends, if, if what I'm saying to you sounds familiar, I just want to make sure you understand. What I'm saying to you, this whole it is complete and utter garbage. It is heresy. That the Scripture does not teach us that God is bound by us and the amount of faith we have. And if we just have enough faith, we'll never be sick. And if we just have enough faith, well, we'll never struggle for anything. And yet, so often we are drawn into this false gospel. Why? Because we want to be well, don't we? <laughs> and we want people we love to be well, and we don't want to struggle. And so it's very appealing to us when somebody sells us this false bill of goods. Oh, you mean if I did this, it would all work out? Notice what we see in this text. Here, I don't believe the focus should be on what Moses does or doesn't do or what the people do or don't do. I think the focus of this text should be entirely on what it is God is doing. And notice what God does. There's an important component that so many interpretations miss. Verse 9, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. That staff represented the power of God. It wasn't magical. It wasn't mystical. But it was a representation of the power of a sovereign God. And that's why God gives that staff to Moses. And He says, when you go to Egypt, you go with My power, Moses. I mean, think if the Exodus depended on the faith of Moses. Well, I'm not sure I'm the right person. I'm not sure I've got the right words. Well, surely, Lord, you can send somebody else. Well, Lord, you gave me these grumbling these people. Well, they're just complaining, Lord. Well, what do I do, Lord? No, the Exodus is based entirely on the power of God. And so God gives Moses this staff as a reminder of His power and also as a representation of His power to the people. And so when Moses goes and those plagues are coming, what does God so often tell him to do? I want you to lift up my staff over the aisle, Moses. Over the Nile Moses. Well, when they get to the sea and they can't pass through the sea and there's an army coming to destroy them and the people are saying, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What does God tell Moses to do? I want you to hold that staff out, Moses. Because the people will be saved by the power of God. And here again, we see Moses with this staff representing the power of God. And as he stands on that hill, and as he lifts that staff, 
What does the Lord do? He shows His power over and over and over again. But there's still questions. For example, why does God call His people to fight here? I mean, think back to when they were at the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army are coming and there's a sea on the other side and the people begin to complain and they don't know what's going to happen. What does Moses tell them? The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. I mean, think about when God's people are enslaved in Egypt. What is the Pharaoh's concern? His concern is there's more of them than there are us. And if they ever get wise to this and they start counting the numbers, then they can just rally together and they can destroy us. And so God's people in Egypt could have taken up swords and clubs and started a revolt. And yet that's not what God called them to do. And even at the Red Sea, God's people could have taken up swords and clubs and attacked the Pharaoh's army. And yet that's not what God called them to do. So why here does God suddenly say, now I want you to go fight. I think it's a good question. I didn't say I had the answer, but I think it's a question that we should ask at least. And honestly, the, the text isn't tremendously clear as to why it is God now tells His people to fight. But, but I do think there's some things we might be able to infer. As I mentioned before, Exodus is a reminder to us of this Gospel story. And once we understand the Gospel, we can go back through Exodus and we can see how page after page after page, that Gospel just, it just comes right up to us. And as we've seen as we've gone through Exodus, that, really, that moment of salvation for God's people was when they went through the Red Sea. That that was a picture of God opening up the sea, bringing His people out of slavery onto the other side and then swallowing up their enemies. Even that picture we have of, of going through the water, I think correlates a bit to baptism today. Not that that baptism saves us, but there's that connection there that we see. And so we have this picture of God's people moving from slavery to salvation. And what's very important for them and what's extremely important for us to understand today is that their salvation and our salvation was and is 0% dependent on us. So, so here's what that means. The Gospel of Jesus is not well, once you stop doing bad stuff and start cleaning yourself up, and once you start having enough faith, and once you start doing this, 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 and this, well, then I'll save you. The Gospel of Jesus is, you and I are lost, depraved, dead. We don't need somebody to throw us a life preserver. We need somebody to come to the bottom of the ocean and get our dead, rotten corpse off of it and bring us up to give us life. The Gospel is not, well, if you try hard enough, God will save you. The Gospel says, while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one who does good. That there is praise on no one's lips apart from God, saving them. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Scripture says. But God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so we have this beautiful reminder of the Gospel in the book of Exodus that the Gospel, the salvation of these people was not dependent on them. And if it was, my goodness, think of how much they grumbled and complained and grumbled and complained. I mean, they get to the point where Pharaoh says, listen, I'm not going to let you go. In fact, I'm going to make your work harder. And rather than cry out to God, they cry out to Pharaoh. And then they come to God's mediator, to his messenger, Moses, and they complain to him too. And yet God saves them. And it's very significant, I believe, in Exodus, that up until this point, God never caused them once to pick up a sword. Because He is showing them that they will be saved completely and totally by His power. So what's the difference now? Well, I believe the difference is in Exodus 17, beginning here in verse 8, that we have a saved people, a redeemed people, a people who've been bought and purchased and brought out of slavery, now on this walk of faith. And on this walk of faith, God calls them to do some things. Just like He calls you and I to do some things today. You see, our works don't produce saving faith. But our saving faith should produce works. Do you see the difference there? Our works do not produce saving faith. But our saving faith should produce works. There should be fruit in our lives of us being Christians. There should be a difference in our lives as believers. And then the Scripture tells us all these ways that salvation should be working itself out in our lives. And so that's why when we come to James, he says, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James is not saying, what good is it, brother, if a person says they have faith, but they haven't been working really hard for that faith? No, what he's saying is, what good is it if they say they have a faith, but that faith doesn't produce any works? Can that faith save him? For brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. Not weak. Not struggling. Not immature. Dead. And so, if there's no fruit of the gospel in our lives the scripture says there is no gospel in our lives so so here's how that plays out you have a conversation with someone that you went to church with 20 years ago maybe you guys came to this church to vbs together maybe you heard the gospel together maybe you walked the aisle together maybe you got baptized together And that was it for them. Maybe they were here a few weeks. Maybe they were here a few months. Maybe they were here a few years. And then from that point, and I'm not talking just you know a few months. I'm talking there's been decades where they wanted to have nothing to do with the people of God, with the Word of God. They they don't have anything to do with it. Their life looks no different than the world around us. There's nothing that can distinguish them from the person who shakes their fist at God and says, I do not believe in you. And yet we somehow want to be comforted in a conversation when they say to us, oh, but no, 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 you see, I'm okay. I I got baptized at that church 
you know, well, I don't remember when, but it was, you know. Oh, I'm a member of such and such. Oh, I know that stuff. You don't have to tell that to me. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is, it is a scary thing at times. It can be exciting, but I can, it's a fearful thing at times to talk to someone about the gospel who knows they're not a Christian. I've had encounters with people who've said, I don't believe this. I'll listen to you, but I, listen, I don't believe in God. I've had so much, so much stuff in my life. If God really existed, if God was really there, He wouldn't have let all this happen. And so, there's no way I'm going to believe in God. I don't believe in God. And that can be overwhelming to think, I'm going to share the Gospel with them. I, I pray that God does a work here. But I'll tell you for me, what's more overwhelming is sharing the Gospel with the person who's so convinced they're saved, but they're lost. And you say, well how, well, how do you know, Pastor? Who made you judge? I'll be, I don't know. I mean, I can't look in your hearts this morning. Every one of y'all could be lost as the day is long right now. But the Scripture gives some evidences. The, the Scripture says, well, here's the fruit of it. Here's what it should look like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. They, these things should be evident in some part. Life should look different. I mean, you, you take... You take a corpse and you compare them to a live person, there's a difference in there. That one's not going to be much fun at dinner. They're dead. This one's alive. They're talking. The Scripture says, this is you without Christ, this is you in Christ, you're either dead or you're alive. Which one are you? Old expression, you put lipstick on a pig, what is it still? You can put church attendance on a dead person, they're still a dead person. And so the Scripture tells us there's, there's more, more to this and we misunderstand when we think somehow that our works will save us. No, our works should flow from that salvation. So here we have this picture of God's people. He has saved them. They're in this battle. He's going to be victorious. But He does call them to do something here. He calls them to take up these arms and to fight with the sword. Now, for some of us, we respond to that and, they, and we think, yeah, I like this kind of battle, you know? I mean, some of us are so antsy and excited to actually fight someone or do something. We're, oh yeah, let me fight. And grab my sword. Cut me off in traffic, you know? What is our sword as a Christian today. Paul says that we fight this battle with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That this is our sword, friends. That the psalmist says in Psalm 119, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That this is our light, this is our lamp, this is our sword. So let me ask you, how ready are you to do battle with this today? How prepared are you to go to battle with this sword? 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Men and women of God, how equipped are you today? God calls us to be equipped. He calls us to be ready for battle. And yet, the great comfort we have is that ultimately, where does that victory belong? That victory belongs to the Lord. And that's the point that we'll touch on last. Point three, the victory belongs to the Lord. The battle here in Exodus 17 is not won because of people's strength. If this battle was won because of Joshua and his army, then it wouldn't matter what Moses was doing on that hill. And here's the flip side of that. This battle's not won just because of what Moses was doing because it's real clear it wasn't won on the strength of Moses. Notice verse 12. His hands grew weary. <laughs> Moses can't even keep holding up a staff. they got to put a rock under him and Aaron and her on both sides they are holding his arms up. Now the battle's not won by his strength. The battle's not won by the people's strength. The battle's won by the Lord's strength. And that's why notice there in verses 14 through 16, Moses makes this memorial, but notice whose name is heralded as part of this memorial. The Lord is my banner. I would imagine most of us in this room have, have visited some type of memorial. And maybe you've been to a national memorial. Maybe you've just seen a memorial around town. Maybe just a little roadside memorial. Oftentimes when we have memorials, they're there to remind us to memorialize a battle, people who fought. And so normally, they'll have on them the name of the, the leader, the name of the soldiers, the name of those who died and gave their life, that life in that battle. The Scripture does not tell us here that Moses puts his name on the memorial. <laughs> or that he puts on there, you know, Joshua and the Israelites defeated the Amalekites. No, it is the Lord's name that is heralded because it is the Lord who won the battle. It is the Lord who gave the victory. But again, something a bit curious here. In verse 14 there, it says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And yet, we continue there, verse 16, he says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So which one? You know? And we will see how Amalek will battle. The Amalekites will battle God's people throughout the Scripture. You'll see them continuing to come up. And in fact, there's one book in the Old Testament that's just about that battle, the book of Esther. Uh, Haman was a descendant. I believe it was Agag. Agag was, he was a leader of the Amalekites. He was a king of the Amalekites. So Haman is an Amalekite. Seeking to do what? To destroy the people of God. But we'll continue to see this battle raging. Ultimately, this battle between who? Between God and His people and the enemy. And then we get to the point in the Scriptures where we see that, that, the, that the battle has now come to this point where, where Jesus is here and He's ready to do battle. And so there He is in the wilderness. And He doesn't pick up a sword. He's got the sword of the Spirit. He's got the Word of God. How does he respond to that enemy? He, he quotes the Word to him. And we see Jesus in His battle over and over again, not just quoting the Word, but living in obedience to the Word to the point where He goes to the cross and dies and defeats ultimately sin and death. 
The victory there comes from Christ and Christ alone. And yet, we see that that's not the final victory because the Scripture says that we're still in this battle and that one day Christ will return and then all enemies will be destroyed. And so as Christians, we live between two battles and between two victories. You might think of it this way if you're a student of history. You're likely familiar then with D-Day and World War II. June 6, 1944, where the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and brought the largest seaborne invasion in history. And with that, a decisive battle was won that ultimately won the war. But the war didn't end that day. The war wouldn't end until V-Day, May 8, 1945. That would be the day when the Allied forces would formally accept the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany. And that day marked the end of World War II. And so, Christian, we we live between D-Day and (laughs) V-Day. Christ stormed the beaches. Christ destroyed our enemy. And now what we have is an already defeated enemy who wants to come up on the weak and the weary and try to ambush. And Christ says one day, V-Day, that enemy will be ultimately and completely annihilated. All marks of sin and the fall will be destroyed. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more death. And see, that's, that's the problem with this Prosperity teaching is it, it tries to say health and wealth now, and it sells us short because God says, Oh, health and wealth's coming. Cancer's going to be gone. There, there's, there's not just going to be good reports in the hospital, there's not going to be any hospitals. No more death, no more disease. That day is coming. And as Christians today, we're called to wait and to trust and to grow in our trust and grow in our faith looking towards that day of ultimate victory. Christ is victorious and Christ will be victorious. And that's why our faith does not rest in ourselves. It rests completely in Him. And so the call for us this morning very simply is this. That we would not trust in chariots or horses. That we would not trust in people or things. That we would not trust in bank accounts or status. That we would not trust in, well, just maybe things will work out tomorrow. Maybe things will get better tomorrow. That we don't trust in, well, this person or that person. We trust ultimately in the Lord and the Lord alone. And we look towards that ushering in ultimately of His kingdom. And along the way, we repent and we trust and we repent and we trust and we repent and we trust. And so that's the call for us this Lord's Day, is that we might trust in Him and trust alone. If you would stand and pray with me. Father, I 
I pray for those here today who have yet to place their trust in Christ, who, who are still living according to this idea that if we're just good enough, if we just try hard enough, if we're, if we're better than average, <laughs> who have this idea that they're going to stand before you one day and if they're good, just outweighs their bad, they'll be okay. I pray, Lord, that you might just completely and utterly destroy that notion in their heart and mind. And that the gospel light would shine through, that they might see for the first time the truth of the Scripture, that that we are all sinners, that the wages of our sin is death, but that you demonstrate your love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that if we will confess Christ as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised, that you raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, would you do that saving work today in their lives? And for others here this morning, Lord, who have, who have been saved, who have been redeemed, who have trusted in you, Lord, would you help us to trust you even more? Would you help us to grow in our faith, uh, understanding that the, the amount of our faith doesn't save us it is the substance of who we faith in the object of our faith who saves us and that as saved people that that you've called us to grow now in our faith and a tangible way we can grow today lord is by turning from sin and turning to you by trusting in you and so father would you help us to grow in our faith and our trust especially and in ways where we see that, that we can't do things to fix it, where we're struggling, where we see people struggling and hurting, Lord, would you help us to trust in you? And Lord, would you help us to look for and long to the, for the day when the battle is over? <laughs> and Lord, when we reign in a new heaven and a new earth with you, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.